Part one of Book the First of A Laodicean by Thomas Hardy. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Simon Evers. Part one of Book the First. George Somerset. The sun blazed down and down, till it was within half an hour of its setting. But the sketcher still lingered at his occupation of measuring and coppering the chevroned doorway, a bold and quaint example of a transitional style of architecture which formed the tower entrance to an English village church. The graveyard being quite open on its western side, the tweed-clad figure of the young draughtsman and the tall mass of antique masonry which rose above him to a battlemented parapet were fired to a great brightness by the solar rays that, crossing the neighbouring mead like a warp of gold threads, in whose mazes groups of equally lustrous gnats danced and wailed incessantly. He was so absorbed in his pursuit that he did not mark the brilliant chromatic effect of which he composed the central feature, till it was brought home to his intelligence by the warmth of the moulded stonework under his touch when measuring, which led him at length to turn his head and gaze on its cause. There are few in whom the sight of a sunset does not beget as much meditative melancholy as contemplative pleasure. The human decline and death that it illustrates being too obvious to escape the notice of the simplest observer. The sketcher, as if he had been brought to this reflection many hundreds of times before by the same spectacle, showed that he did not wish to pursue it just now, by turning away his face after a few moments to resume his architectural studies. He took his measurements carefully, and, as if he reverenced the old workers whose trick he was endeavouring to acquire, six hundred years after the original performance had ceased and the performers passed into the unseen. By means of a strip of lead, called a leaden tape, which he pressed around and into the fillets and hollows with his finger and thumb, he transferred the exact contour of each moulding to his drawing that lay on a sketching stool a few feet distant. There were also a sketching block, a small T-square, a bow pencil and other mathematical instruments. When he had marked down the line thus fixed, he returned to the doorway to copy another, as before. It being the month of August, when the pale face of the townsman and the stranger is to be seen among the brown skins of remotest uplanders, not only in England, but throughout the temperate zone, few of the homeward-bound labourers paused to notice him further than by a momentary turn of the head. They had beheld such gentlemen before, not exactly measuring the church so accurately as this one seemed to be doing, but painting it from a distance, or at least walking round the mouldy pile. At the same time, the present visitor, even exteriorly, was not altogether commonplace. His features were good, his eyes of the dark, deep sort called eloquent by the sex that ought to know, and with that ray of light in them which announces a heart susceptible to beauty of all kinds, in woman, in art, and in inanimate nature. Though he would have been broadly characterised as a young man, his face bore contradictory testimonies to his precise age. This was conceivably owing to a too dominant speculative activity in him, which, while it had preserved the emotional side of his constitution, and with it the significant flexuousness of mouth and chin, had played upon his forehead and temples, till, at weary moments, they exhibited some traces of being over-exercised. A youthfulness about the mobile features, a mature forehead, though not exactly what the world has been familiar with in past ages, is now growing common, 
and with the advance of juvenile introspection, it probably must grow commoner still. Briefly, he had more of the beauty, if beauty it ought to be called, of the future human type than of the past, but not so much as to make him other than a nice young man. His build was somewhat slender and tall. His complexion, though a little browned by recent exposure, was that of a man who spent much of his time in the... Of beard he had but small show, though he was as innocent as a Nazarite of the use of the razor. But he possessed a moustache all-sufficient to hide the subtleties of his mouth, which could thus be tremulous at tender moments without provoking inconvenient criticism. Owing to his situation on high ground, open to the west, he remained enveloped in the lingering aureate haze till a time when the eastern part of the churchyard was in obscurity and damp with rising dew. When it was too dark to sketch further, he packed up his drawing, and, beckoning to a lad who had been idling by the gate, directed him to carry the stool and implements to a roadside inn which he named, lying a mile or two ahead. The draughtsman leisurely followed the lad out of the churchyard and along a lane in the direction signified. The spectacle of a summer traveller from London sketching medieval details in these neo-pagan days, when a lull has come over the study of English Gothic architecture, through a wee awakening to the art forms of times that more nearly neighbour our own, is accounted for by the fact that George Somerset, son of the academician of that name, was a man of independent tastes and excursive instincts, who unconsciously, and perhaps unhappily, took greater pleasure in floating in lonely currents of thought than with the general tide of opinion. When quite a lad, in the days of the French Gothic mania which immediately succeeded to the great English-pointed revival under Britain, Pugin, Rickman, Scott and other medievalists, he had crept away from the fashion to admire what was good in Palladian and Renaissance. As soon as Jacobean, Queen Anne and kindred accretions of decayed stars began to be popular, he purchased such old-school works as Revit and Stuart, Chambers and the rest, and work diligently at the five orders. Till quite bewildered on the question of style, he concluded that all styles were extinct, and with them all architecture as a living art. Somerset was not old enough at that time to know that, in practice, art had at all times been as full of shifts and compromises as every other mundane thing. That ideal perfection was never achieved by Greek, Goth or Hebrew Jew, and never would be and thus he was thrown into a mood of disgust with his profession, from which mood he was only delivered by recklessly abandoning these studies and indulging in an old enthusiasm for poetical literature. For two whole years he did nothing but write verse in every conceivable metre and on every conceivable subject, from Wordsworthian sonnets on the singing of his tea-kettle to epic fragments on the fall of empires. His discovery at the age of five and twenty that these inspired works were not jumped at by the publishers with all the eagerness they deserved coincided in point of time with a severe hint from his father that unless he went on with his legitimate profession he might have to look elsewhere than at home for an allowance. Mr Somerset Junior then awoke to realities, became intently practical, rushed back to his dusty drawing boards and worked up the styles anew with a view of regularly starting in practice on the first day of the following January. It is an old story, and perhaps only deserves the light tone in which the soaring of a young man into the Empyrean and his descent again is always narrated. But, as has often been said, 
the light and the truth may be on the side of the dreamer. A far wider view than the wise ones have may be his at that recalcitrant time, and his reduction to common measure be nothing less than a tragic event. The operation called lunging, in which a haltered colt is made to trot round and round a horsebreaker who holds the rope till the beholder grows dizzy in looking at them, is a very unhappy one for the animal concerned. During its progress, the colt springs upwards, across the circle, stops, flies over the turf with the velocity of a bird, and indulges in all sorts of graceful antics. But he always ends in one way, thanks to the knotted whipcord, in a level trot round the lunger with the regularity of a horizontal wheel, and in the loss for ever to his character of the bold contours which the fine hand of nature gave it. Yet the process is considered to be the making of him. Whether Somerset became permanently made under the action of the inevitable lunge, or whether he lapsed into mere dabbling with the artistic side of his profession only, it would be premature to say. But at any rate, it was his contrite return to architecture as a calling that sent him on the sketching excursion under notice. Feeling that something still was wanting to round off his knowledge before he could take his professional line with confidence, he was led to remember that his own native Gothic was the one form of design that he had totally neglected from the beginning, through it having greeted him with wearisome iteration at the opening of his career. Now it had again returned to silence. Indeed, such is the surprising instability of art principles, as they are facetiously called, is just as likely as not to sink into the neglect and oblivion which had been its lot in Georgian times. This accident of being out of vogue lent English Gothic an additional charm to one of his proclivities, and away he went to make it the business of a summer circuit in the West. A quiet time of evening, the secluded neighbourhood, the unusually gorgeous liveries of the clouds packed in a pile over that quarter of the heavens in which the sun had disappeared, were such as to make a traveller loiter on his walk. Coming to a stile, Somerset mounted himself on the top bar to imbibe the spirit of the scene and hour. The evening was so still that every trifling sound could be heard for miles. There was the rattle of a returning wagon, mixed with the smacks of the wagoner's whip. The team must have been at least three miles off. From far over the hill came the faint periodic yell of kenneled hounds, while from the nearest village resounded the voices of boys at play in the twilight. Then a powerful clock struck the hour. It was not from the direction of the church, but rather from the wood behind him, and he thought it must be the clock of some mansion that way. But the mind of man cannot always be forced to take up subjects by the pressure of their material presence, and Somerset's thoughts were often, to his great loss, apt to be even more than common truants from the tones and images that met his outer senses on walks and rides. He would sometimes go quietly through the queerest, gayest, most extraordinary town in Europe, and let it alone provided it did not meddle with him by its beggars, beauties, innkeepers, police, coachmen, mongrels, bad smells, and such like obstructions. This feat of questionable utility he began performing now. Sitting on the three-inch ash rail that had been peeled and polished like glass by the rubbings of all the small clothes of the parish, he forgot the time, the place, forgot that it was August, in short, everything of the present altogether. His mind flew back to his past life and deplored the waste of time that had resulted from his not having been able to make up his mind 
which of the many fashions of art that were coming and going in kaleidoscopic change was the true point of departure from himself. It suffered from the modern malady of unlimited appreciativeness as much as any living man of his own age. Dozens of his fellows in years and experience, who had never thought specially of the matter, but had blunderingly applied themselves to whatever form of art confronted them at the moment of their making a move, were by this time acquiring renown as new lights, while he was still unknown. He wished that some accident could have hemmed in his eyes between inexorable blinkers and sped him on in a channel ever so worn. Thus balanced between believing and not believing in his own future, he was recalled to the scene without by hearing the notes of a familiar hymn rising in subdued harmonies from a valley below. He listened more heedfully. It was his old friend, the New Sabbath, which he had never once heard since the lisping days of childhood, and whose existence, much as it had then been to him, he had, till this moment, quite forgotten. Where the New Sabbath had kept itself all these years, why that sound and hearty melody had disappeared from all the cathedrals, parish churches, minsters and chapels of ease that he had been acquainted with during his apprenticeship to life, and until his ways had become irregular and uncongregational, he could not at first say. But then he recollected that the tune appertained to the old West Gallery period of church music, anterior to the great choral reformation and the rule of monk, that old time when the repetition of a word or half-line of a verse was not considered a disgrace to an ecclesiastical choir. Willing to be interested in anything which would keep him out of doors, Somerset dismounted from the stile and descended the hill before him to learn whence the singing proceeded. End of part one of Book the First.